0: Welcome to Ability Stories Podcast, where we discuss the successes, challenges, and stories of people with disabilities. I'm your host, Tara Briggs. To contact me, please send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. Welcome to Ability Stories. My guest today is John Lipsy. John is a red zone specialist, that's the correct title, right? For the Apple company, and he has been working for them for two and a half years. John is totally blind, and he's going to talk to us today. I'm going to talk with you about what you do for your job and how you got the job and hear your story. So welcome to Ability Stories. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you.
1: I'm actually really kind of excited and nervous, and I don't know why I'm nervous. I've known you forever. I her, know. We've <laughs> known
0: each other since... Interviewing
1: is one of those things that's always made me nervous. Presenting, in general, just makes me nervous. Oh, and really? And it's actually one of the things that I'm working on. One of my goals at Apple, kind of a midterm goal in terms of time, like, time-wise, is to facilitate training for new hires. And... I can't really do that unless I can figure out why I get so nervous when I have to present in front of people. Because you
0: need to join Toastmasters.
1: I probably do. We Um, meet
0: every Tuesday at noon at the Center for the Blind. It's great.
1: I I should do that. (laughs) But I have been given a few opportunities at work. Like I told one of my managers, and one of the things we'll talk about in a few minutes is one of my favorite aspects of working at Apple is the care they take to ensure that the development of employees is kind of central in, you know like the things that you want to develop in yourself are the things that get developed. So one of the things I've been doing is facilitating sections of training for new hires like not not full days or even weeks of training just like, you know, a little 15-minute chunk of time where I basically talk about best practices for working with customers with disabilities and how to help them and how to work with me in the context of you know what we do for our jobs and making sure that i have the support that i need so that i can do what i need to do because it's really easy if you've been working with me for the full two and a half years it's a little bit less so if you've just seen me because you're a new hire and you walk in you see this guy with his dog and you're like oh he works here that's cool what does he do So I've done a little bit of that and it it helps, but it's not, I mean, I need, I need more.
0: Well, it helps as a customer because it's nice to walk into the Apple store and, um, people know not to just grab your arm and pull you somewhere right. <laughs> so, <laughs> too many you've done well with that growing up so we yeah. don't need any more <laughs> exactly so it's nice because <laughs> yeah. it's like okay obviously these people have some basic education on how to help people with disabilities which is great it is and um, oh, one of the things is
1: it's always kind of been that way we'll, we'll talk about my work history a little bit um, But when I first ever interviewed with Apple, one of the things I noticed was they didn't even, I don't want to say they didn't acknowledge my blindness, Mm -hmm. but it almost feels like that because they just said hello and treated me like a normal human being and didn't, they didn't even ask me about performing any aspects of my job in any of the interview phases when I was interviewing for Apple. It wasn't until I got hired and we actually were doing... Um, training in an Apple store where they said, these are the internal systems we use. Let's make sure they're accessible to you. But that was after I'd been hired. It was never a question asked in an interview or even possibly thought of until I was in a store, which is very different to any other interview experience I'd ever had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We'll we'll get into that. Awesome. Well, let's start at the beginning. (laughs) Um, You lost your sight from Retinopathy of prematurity. That's correct. Because how much did you weigh? I was one pound thirteen ounces. Oh
1: really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was I was fifteen weeks premature. And I You're spent three steak, months in the hospital. Man. I was tiny. Yeah. The chances of my survival were not very good. And it's funny because my dad actually, as a result of me, you know, spending so much time in the hospital, went back to nursing school and now works with some of those doctors who said I wasn't going to survive. So I suspect he kind of enjoys rubbing it in their faces every once in a while, that they were wrong.
0: <laughs> Bring you by work. <laughs> yeah. Take yeah. a look at my son. <laughs> well, actually, I do.
1: One of the things that um, my dad decided that I should do fairly early on when he started working, he works at Primary Children's in the newborn intensive care unit, mm-hmm. and one of the things that he and I collaborate on, and I think it's a great idea, I wish he had had something like it for him and my mom when I was born, is... If a child is born and they're relatively positive, they may not be hundred percent, but if they're positive that the child is either going like is either blind already or is going to lose their vision at some point,
2: mm.
1: he arranges well, he asks the parents if they want to, and then he arranges for me to go in and talk to them and let them know, you know, what life is like as a blind child. And yes, you have to let your kid fall down the stairs. I fell down the stairs in this house numerous times when I was a baby. Um, they were carpeted at that point. They're not anymore. But when I was little, they were carpeted and there was carpet at the bottom. So it, it hurt because you're falling downstairs, but I learned very quickly where my stairs were. Right. And right. that was the best way for me to learn. They, they never told me to stop when, you know, when I was going to fall down the stairs. They did when we were remodeling the house, but that's because there was like a gigantic hole where the railing used to be. Like we have a banister and there they took it out during the remodel so there was just this big hole and you wouldn't just fall down from the top stair you could start as far down as like six or seven stairs down so that it could have actually really injured me
0: so what um why did your parents clue in because from what i when i'm hearing you say it, um your parents didn't wrap you in bolt wrap
1: no not really i mean and i don't know Really. Um, they had a lot of support from the parent infant program, Mm. which I believe is part of, uh, Utah schools for the deaf and blind. I think they do that at some level. So they, you know, they met with people from there, but I don't know how much of that was their input and how much was my parents just deciding that, you know, if he were any other kid, we'd let them, you know, get scrapes and fall downstairs and fall off bikes. So we're going to let John do the same stuff. Did you learn to ride a bike? Not very well, no. I um, I don't have the best balance if it's something mm. other than walking, which is hilarious because I skied, and I skied pretty well for a long time. But if you put me on something that's not fully me-controlled, like it's not my body, if it's a like a device, like a bike or a motorcycle or something, mm. I fail.
0: What um, about a tandem?
1: I've done tandem, and mm. I enjoyed it. Um, but biking has never been, like I'm not a huge... I'm not a huge outdoorsy person in general.
0: I, I rode a bike as a kid. Mm-hmm. But I'm not courageous and like that anymore, so now I have to have some lovely person with working eyes sure, on the front of the sure. bike. <laughs> as now a kid put, I didn't care. As you an put adult, me on a I'm horse. Like, wait a minute.
1: Put me on a horse and I'll go all day long.
0: Oh well you oh, I really love
1: horseback riding.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I
1: haven't been for years, but um, I was very active as a child with the National Ability Centre in Park City. Mm-hmm. And they do skiing, horseback riding, they've done whitewater rafting trips um I tandem biked with them a couple times actually and um it was it was a lot of fun I learned like my my parents were very encouraging if I wanted to do something mm-hmm. the only time they ever told me no was when I was about 6 years old and I came to this realization I was like you know I take a bus to school there's this fleet of buses and the person who drives this bus is responsible for getting all these kids where they need to go safely and on time And I wanted that job. I wanted to drive buses and make sure kids got to school because I love school and I thought it was kind of cool that somebody's responsibility was to literally make sure that kids got there on time.
2: Mm. And I
1: wanted that job. So I went home and I was like, guys, 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 I'm going to be a bus driver. (laughs) And my parents were like, no, no, you're, you're really not. And they were, they were good about it. They explained to me why I couldn't do it. and. They were very forward-thinking, and they said, you know, one day maybe they'll have a way to restore your vision, and then if you want to drive, you can drive a car or a bus or whatever you want. So then, you know, naturally I wanted to be a race car driver (laughs) because clearly if I can drive whatever I want, yes, I want to drive something that goes ridiculously fast. Um, But that was the only time they ever discouraged me from a career path. I wanted to be an astronaut. They never said no. Mm -hmm. They told me that I'd have to do lots of maths and sciences, and as I got older and realized that I didn't have an aptitude for – math, I, I was okay in science, but math wasn't really my strong suit, so I ditched the astronaut idea. I, I went through a lot of career possibilities growing up.
0: Oh yeah, everybody, everybody does everybody. that.
1: <laughs> and I only got told no once in my life, so I think we're doing okay. Um, but they always encouraged me to, you know, if I wanted to ski, my mom found the National Ability Center and got me set up with them so I could ski. The first time I went, I hated it. It was cold. I was tiny. I froze. Like, I felt like I was going to freeze to death. Mm-hmm. She made me do it for a year. And then she probably hates herself for doing that because for the next 20 years, she was driving me up to Park City once a week so I could ski because after the first year, I fell in love with it and didn't want to do anything else it in is, the wintertime. It is so fun. It's great fun. Yeah. But Did
0: she... you ever want to do, like, Paralympics or anything? I never really gave it
1: a lot of thought back then. Mm-hmm when i was about 14 maybe i had a, a guide who had you know skied with me off and on over over a couple of years mm-hmm. and she said the national ability center has a, a fundraiser they do every year and part of it is a uh, a slalom like a race course she said do you want to do the the race course and race through the slalom gates and i I hemmed and hawed about it for a bit. I didn't know that if my ability was good enough, like I didn't trust myself as a skier. And she said, all you have to do is follow my directions. I will guide you through the gates. So we, you can run the course. And as long as nobody's using the course for an actual race, the the course is open. You just have to let them know that you want to run it. And if you want to be timed, they'll set it up so they can time you. But we ran it without being timed. And... We ran it a few times and I decided it was kind of cool. So I was like, sure, let's do it. And I didn't do the best in time because it was my first time ever running a course like it. And I actually hit one of the gates, which I suspect is probably going to not affect your score in a positive way. Right. <laughs> but um, I enjoyed it. I just never really gave any thought to doing it professionally. And then um, the last time there were Winter Olympics, my mom and I were talking about it. And I said, you know, what I really want to do is get back into skiing. I haven't skied for about eight years, Hmm. just because my mom, you know, as she's gotten older, she's become a little less willing to drive me up to Park City every Sunday or any day of the week for that matter to take me skiing. Um, But I kind of decided I want to get back into skiing and maybe do Paralympics at some point in the future because I definitely, like, I don't think I'm too old to do it. I think I could still do it. I just need to rebuild my, my muscle memory for skiing. And... It's actually really funny because shortly after my mom and I had that discussion, a guy came into the Apple store and he started talking to me, looking to buy a phone and everything. And he's like, wait a second, you're John Lipsy. And I was like, yeah. And he said, yeah, I'm Jack. I used to teach you skiing at Park City. Oh, so And he still works up there. Oh, wow. So um, I might actually get back into it again.
0: Oh, that's awesome. With him. So um, did your parents ever talk to you about any kind of a grief process or any kind of adjustment to your disability on their part?
1: No, we've never talked about it. I suspect that they went through one, but I don't really know, you know, what that was like for them. I just sort of always remember them being perfectly fine with it and just supporting, you know, supporting me through everything. I do know when I was very little, they they were told that they were going to have to send me to the School for the Blind up in Ogden. Mm -hmm. And my dad, in his very blunt, forceful way, said, there's no way in hell that that's happening. I'm moving to Ogden because he's going to be a day student. And then they ended up opening a school in Salt Lake. Mm. He had no desire to send me away. So I think as much as they seemed to cope well, they didn't really like the idea of me being away from them when I was younger for any length of time. Yeah,
0: well, I I mean, that's been a huge reason that people have been mainstreamed, I think. Sure. Is that parents were like, wait... (laughs)
1: Um, now they'll send me off wherever I want to go whenever you know I mean I went to space camp
0: right yeah after... yeah well there's a difference between somebody who's 6 and somebody who's 16 yeah yeah so in your do you know why you were premature just got lucky or I don't know
1: I don't think they, anybody really knows yeah it um, happens occasionally cause my brother was actually late mm. so my mom just can't have him on time I don't know <laughs> <laughs> They did do a lot with her, though, to make sure that my brother wouldn't be premature Mm -hmm. after I had been. My mom was on a lot of bed rest, and she had um, one of those monitors that she had to, you know, use every day to take readings of herself and of the baby and everything, and send readings back to the doctor. You know, all very old school, comparatively to what they have now, but they were very carefully monitoring her after I was born just to make sure that any subsequent children wouldn't be born premature.
0: So um, how long did you go to the School for the Blind? I went
1: to the School for the Blind through fourth grade. And
0: then And then
1: I mainstreamed. There is an elementary school just like three blocks away from here that I went to for fifth and sixth grade.
0: What was that like?
1: If I could do it over again, and Mm -hmm. I mean I don't know how much influence I would have had because I was a kid, I would have told my parents to mainstream me earlier. How come? Because when you're mainstreamed in fifth grade – All the kids have been going to school together since kindergarten. Mm -hmm. More than likely. So integrating yourself into that social structure is difficult enough. Being somebody who's different with any kind of a disability, I don't even know that necessarily has to be a disability, like any kind of difference, like cultural difference, you know, if you're like non-Caucasian, is going to just add to the difficulty of integration. Mm. And... I had a really rough fifth and sixth grade experience.
0: With other kids?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. The the teachers were fine. They didn't necessarily know how best to help me, but I had a really, you know, I had a really good vision teacher who came and worked with me and worked with the teachers and stuff. But the kids were, it was, it was hard. So
0: did, did you feel, like, isolated? Like, you didn't have any friends, or? Yes, kind of. Um... I I have a lot
1: more knowledge now to look back on it. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know how much of what I've experienced is, you know, actually from then and how much of it is my knowledge now as a 31-year-old adult kind of bleeding over into those memories. But um, I I definitely know for a fact that there was one kid who was, he, he was nice enough. I mean, we were decent friends, but he totally came over to my house and stole stuff from me. Mm-hmm. 'Cause that's what kids do apparently. They steal from the blind kid. Oh wow. I guess. I don't know. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um so, so that was it was it was rough. But um Sounds like you wouldn't repeat those no, a couple of years. No. For... <laughs> seventh grade was a much better experience, which is interesting to me. I went to a Lutheran school in mm-hmm. seventh and eighth grade. And it was a K through eight school. So most of those kids had also been together since kindergarten. But I felt ridiculously welcomed by them. And they, you know, genuinely made an effort to get to know me and, like, ask me how, the, you know, how they could help me or if I needed help with stuff. Mm. It was just a much better experience. And I don't know how much of that was because there were only eight of us in my class in total for the seventh grade. Like, Oh, the seventh, yeah. The seventh and eighth grade classes when I was at that school were actually combined into one. But the seventh grade class itself that I entered into was only about eight or nine kids. Mm. And I think that definitely played a factor. And it probably also helped, you know, the kids. Lutherans in general are just ridiculously nice human beings. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like, I don't know how much of that is religious and how much of that is just the the type of people that gravitate toward the Lutheran church tend to be ridiculously nice human beings. I mean, because you'll find nice people everywhere, religiously and not religiously. But it was just a very, very different and much nicer experience.
0: So, um, kind of getting into your teenage years. Yes, what were they? What were they like? High school was interesting.
1: Um, my freshman year was the year that the school opened. I went to Juan Diego in Draper, mm. and so I had an O and M specialist. You know, they would walk with me through the school and kind of show me where things were but we got to walk through the school while it was still kind of under construction. So when it opened, it was a little bit different than what I had learned when I walked through it to kind of map out where stuff was. Mm -hmm. And none of the other kids knew where anything was in the school either. So on the one hand, we were all in the same boat. On the other hand, it was difficult to get the support I needed from other students because they didn't know where stuff was either. Mm -hmm. After my freshman year, though, it got a lot easier. Like I kind of, you know, I knew where stuff was. Kids knew where stuff was. For the most part, they were pretty good at making sure that I didn't run into them. Sometimes they would intentionally stand in my way, but that was just kids being kids because they're stupid. <laughs> right. um, I um, I actually decided today that I was going to tell this story when I was getting ready before I, before I met with you. Um, my freshman, no, my sophomore year of high school, I was on the wrestling team. Mm-hmm. And that was when I sort of discovered, despite my interest in skiing and love of skiing and... Beep baseball. I would played beat baseball occasionally when I was younger. I viewed sports, because skiing is technically a sport, as leisure activities. I didn't view them as competitions. Mm-hmm. So doing sport for competition, like wrestling, was definitely not my forte. And I actually had talked to my coach at one point that year about quitting the team, and he somehow convinced me not to. And then I won a match, which convinced me not to. But it was a one-year thing. I decided not to do it again, and everybody was really disappointed in me. Oh. I think about that every once in a while, and I've come to the realization, and I don't know how I feel about this, but I've come to the realization that they were disappointed in me because, and I don't, I don't necessarily think that any of them saw it this way, but the way that I interpret what happened is they view it as they lost their token blind kid on the wrestling team. Because, mm-hmm. you know, clearly if I'm you have a blind to... kid... If you have a blind kid at your school, that blind kid should be on the wrestling team. Like, I'm kind of glad I didn't continue with it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I didn't really think that that was, like, now, you know, I'm... I didn't want to be the token blind person. I don't know that anybody ever really wants to, but sometimes we get thrust into that role.
0: And so that, how come you think that you'd use the token blind person? I
1: think... Nobody ever said anything. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that they would. That would be ridiculous if they did. But anytime, like whenever I was approached about being on the wrestling team, the conversation always started with one of my wrestling coaches going, I went to high school with this blind kid and he wrestled. So it was kind of just assumed that I would do it.
0: So, so playing a little bit of devil's advocate, um, when I was in high school I had a ceramics teacher my senior year of high school my last semester and I took his class for one reason because the guy kept pestering me anytime he saw me in the hall he would bug me when are you going to join my class when are you going to join my class when are you going to take my class and finally I was like well okay it's kind of a novel experience to have somebody who wants me in my class sure sure (laughs) in his class so I'm like okay fine I'll take your class so what I found out later was that he had seen years and years earlier, a public television documentary of a sculptor. And it was a blind lady who was sculpting, uh, you know, head busts of, of people. Mm-hmm. And she was touching their faces and sculpting exactly what she taught, what was she was feeling. Oh, wow. And so he had clued in from this that the, the clay is an art form that is really tactile. And he'd also had one of his professor's in college who would blindfold all the students and have them work on the potter's will without mm. sight. And so his dream to teach me had to do, you know, his desire to teach me had to do with the fact that he figured that clay was a a really tactile art form. Mm-hmm. And that if you were working with somebody who used their hands to do everything, you might have some really interesting results from the student, and you might have a really cool experience as a teacher. So for him, it wasn't that he um, wanted a token blind person in his class; it was that he just was really curious about how that would work without without sight. Mm-hmm. So what if that was? Yeah, you know, I mean, what if your teacher was just saw that wrestling was a blind friendly thing to do, and that you could be really good at it.
1: And it very much is. It's very blind friendly for the most part. Um and I think it sort of depends like I had two wrestling coaches
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I feel really bad for saying this but no. I'm just going I'm just going to throw it out there one of them took a much greater interest in developing my like repertoire of like wrestling skills mm-hmm. than the other did and unfortunately the one who took the most interest in my development and like like worked with me and mentored me he got injured at practice like a month or two in and couldn't participate in subsequent practices hmm. and i found it to be a very different experience after that point and i didn't like i didn't like what i was experiencing after that i didn't feel that the the care was necessarily taken to make sure that i actually understood what was being demonstrated in in practice.
0: Okay. That makes sense. So you felt like you were more, it was more just having you on the team, mm-hmm. just to have you on the team because here's our, you know, cool disabled person on the yeah. team rather than we're really going to work to develop you as an individual. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense. Cause for me, what happened was I felt like I was being developed as an individual. Right. Yeah.
1: And you want that. You want to feel like you're being developed as an individual. Yeah. But, in in choosing to not wrestle the next year, I kind of developed the understanding that I need to like I need to do what's best for me, which I'd never really done before. I'd always kind of done if people said, Hey, you should do this, I did. Mm-hmm. I played piano for a good ten years because my mom said you should play piano. Well, she asked me if I wanted to when I was like five. And at the time I was five, I didn't really like to say no if, she, if my mom wanted stuff. Right. So she said, do you want to play piano? And I said, yes. And I hated practicing. Always <laughs> hated practicing. I miss not playing anymore now mm-hmm. that I'm you know older. But at the time, I hated practicing. And so my junior year of high school, everybody expected me to wrestle again. And up until the first day of wrestling practice, everybody assumed I was going to wrestle. And it's, it's funny to me. The night before wrestling practice, I was watching old reruns of a show called Family Ties. And there was an episode, and somebody had told one of the kids in the show, if you don't want to do something, even though everybody's expecting you to do it, you shouldn't do it. And I said, how fitting is that? Mm. So the next day, my mom actually showed up to uh, drop off my gym bag with all my wrestling clothes in it because she worked at the high school. And she just kept all my stuff in the kitchen and just brought it to me after class. And she brought it to me at the end of my algebra class. And she said, I'll see you after wrestling practice. And I said, well, actually, no, I'm not going to do it. And there was this huge shock surprise. What are you talking about? Why aren't you going to wrestle? But once I made the decision, I found the people in general were pretty supportive of, you know, me doing what I wanted to do. And that's always continued like into my professional life. I, um... We'll get we'll get to my professional life in a minute. We'll finish high school and college first.
0: So you must have been a pretty um, not rebellious teenager. <laughs>
1: no, very much not. If your only
0: form of rebellion is I'm not doing wrestling. <laughs> no, I was I was a very good
1: kid. I um, I didn't go to parties. I didn't. Uh... My my mom made an interesting observation once, and I never really thought about it until. I got into adulthood. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I really only had one or two really good friends in high school. One of them was on the wrestling team with me. And I was glad to learn that our friendship wasn't contingent on me staying on the wrestling team because he's... I don't see him anymore. He's gone to California. I think last I heard he was working at Disneyland, Mm. which is kind of cool. But um, he, you know, he and I hung out and stuff. And the other one was a very lonely child. He he had a very rough life, and I tend to attract this type of human being for some reason. But, um... I think that relates to
0: your disability.
1: Maybe. I don't know. I, mean, I don't I'd... think fully, no. But it may play a part, yes.
0: Because you have somebody who can see that you... out. You know, it's sort of obvious that you don't have the perfect life. Mm-hmm. And so they... The Maybe. You?
1: Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I'd never really considered that angle before, but it's entirely possible. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't have a lot like I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends who were like let's hang out after school and stuff. And I didn't really think about it. I was I was content at that point in my life with where my life was. And then one day when I was older, my mom was talking to somebody about it and she said, you know, when John was in high school, he didn't have a whole lot of friends and one of the people who was there for that discussion happened to be in high school with me, and she was like, well, I was his friend, and then she left, and my mom was like, yeah, but you actually never hung out with each other, did you? And I was like, no, no, we never really did outside of school. And I think I've become more outgoing since school.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I don't think anybody would ever have called me shy. I don't think that's a description that could ever apply to me. But when I was in school, I was... Hesitant to reach out to people and like make friendships. and I think part of that was because I was still sort of remembering what fifth and sixth grades were like.
2: Mm.
1: And I didn't really push for friendships too much until like my junior or senior year of high school maybe. And some of those kids that I really reached out to my junior and senior year of high school I'm still in contact with and I still hang out with them. like they'll one of them has a tendency to text me she, I need to talk to her about this, she'll text me and she'll be like, I'll be to your house in five minutes. <laughs> and she will show up and she'll be like, let's go do something. No planning, which I mean, I'm perfectly fine with spontaneity, but if you text me and I'm in my pajamas and you only give me five minutes warning, that's not enough time for me to get presentable to go anywhere. But um, she, uh, she's gotten better at that. It, I think part of it was she went to college out of town she went to Colorado, I think, for school. So when she was in town, you know, she had to see everybody while she was here for breaks and stuff. So if she decided she was going to come see me, <laughs> she's going to come see me whether I'm ready <laughs> or not. But um, once I once I really, you know... Just one quick question about
0: forming friendships. Yes. Did you uh, have to deal with, have issues with friends over your blindness, like they were patronizing or I never really thought so mm-hmm. no um
1: I have and we'll we'll touch more on this when we get to my like experiences at Apple but mm-hmm. I now compare people to my friends and co-workers at Apple mm-hmm. because they're a very high caliber of human being Apple tends to hire Really amazing human beings,
2: Uh
1: and some of my friends when I was you know growing up weren't the same caliber of person, but they never. I mean, the the ones that I got really close to never had any like there were never any issues there with my blindness. Now some of the kids that I was less less friendly with, I guess, they tended to do all those things that just piss blind people off, like walking in the way, like walking away in the middle of conversations. I, I, there were some kids that I went to school with who were notorious for this. They would sit there and engage me in conversation and then they just wander away <laughs> yeah. and not say a word.
0: It's like, if you're going to leave, just, just say I'm going. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> or you don't even have to necessarily like say a whole lot. Um, one of the things that we do. The word
0: by would suffice, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: And it's gotten like at work. Because when we're not huge busy, you know, some of us will just engage in conversations and stuff. And then because when we when it is busy or like it's just such a fast paced thing, you don't have a lot of time for a lot of words. So I've just come to realize that if I'm in the middle of a conversation and you tap me on the shoulder, it generally means you're going away to go help somebody. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally fine with that because yeah. you've given me some kind of a cue that you're not going to be there to hear what I have to say. Yeah. And that's yeah, all I exactly. need. You know, it's not a huge thing, but some people just don't get it.
0: No, yeah, interacting with um, those of us who are blind, I always think it's kind of similar to phone etiquette, right? Yeah. So so with phone etiquette, you're going to know somebody a few times before you assume they recognize your voice. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to come up to them the second time and say, hey, how's it going? And you're sitting there like, who in the world are you? You know me. You seem to know half my life story, but I couldn't tell you who you are if you threaten me with death. (laughs) And the other thing you do on the phone is if you need to leave the conversation, you say something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. People don't don't get that. They
1: really seem not to do that very well. Anyway.
0: Um, So you're graduated from high school. And Mm -hmm. what do you want to do? What's the plan?
1: My plan was very straightforward for the first month of college.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm going to go to Westminster. I'm going to get an education degree and, a you know, some subject degree. I hadn't decided yet. I'm going to go back to Juan Diego and teach. Mm. That was my plan. Straightforward. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Then I started taking an intro to psychology course, and I thought, psychology is really cool. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should study this. It ended up I took so many classes that I was interested in I got through my sophomore year and got pulled aside and they told me you need to declare a major and I had no idea what I wanted to do Mm. and so I actually went and met with a like one of their career counselor people on campus and he asked me what you know what kind of my goals were and I told him because at that point I still kind of wanted to teach and he said well what do you want to teach and I said I don't know so then he asked me You've taken, a, you know, a lot of general courses at Westminster. What subject have you enjoyed the most? And I thought about it, and I thought about the professors I'd had, and I decided history was my favorite. Mm-hmm. And so then I decided I was going to get a history major, or history degree.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Couple semesters into my history degree, a friend of mine was complaining about how they didn't receive good services when they were mainstreamed from their vision teacher. I was lucky and I had an excellent vision teacher from the Jordan School District and the more I learned about how a lot of people didn't get that, the more I wanted to do that. so I very promptly switched majors and schools and went to the University of Utah and enrolled in their special education program. When you transition and I don't suspect it's unique to blind people I, I don't think it's it was a me thing I think it's a it's a thing that would affect any anybody probably to some degree. When you go from a Lutheran school with eight kids in your class to a Catholic school that's bigger but still class sizes are pretty small to Westminster to the University of Utah you have a huge shock in your life and it transitioned to me doing kind of poorly in my classes because I was trying to cope with the change in everything. I went from a school where all my professors knew me to the University of Utah where I took a class in an auditorium Mm -hmm. And I literally had a professor ask me once when I asked him to make sure that the exam was over at the disability center so I could take it if I was in his class.
0: So did you not meet with your, like, did you go up to your professors on the first day and talk to him or? I did not. Um, I never
1: had. Mm. And I think part of that, the reason I didn't at the University of Utah was because especially once I was in the history major at Westminster, I didn't have to. All my professors knew me. Mm -hmm. And if I took a class in a different program, like I had to take an ethics class, that professor knew, had seen me around campus enough and knew professors who had taught me. So, you know, as soon as they found out they were going to be in my class, The professor told them, basically, I was an amazing human being, which is sometimes true and sometimes not. (laughs) Um, So I didn't really feel that I had to. Like, it didn't even occur to me that these people didn't know me for some reason. And I I don't know why, but Mm -hmm. it just never occurred to me. Um, It also didn't help that I only had one auditorium-style class. All the rest of my classes were what I was used to at Westminster, smaller class sizes with, you know, some students and a professor. So they could clearly see who was and wasn't in their class. And... I only stayed at the U for a semester, and then Mm -hmm. I went back to Westminster and completed my history degree.
2: Mm.
1: Didn't end up getting the education degree because I wasn't sure. When I went back to Westminster, I was in kind of a weird place emotionally. I I failed a class at the U, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and that did a whole lot of things to my emotions and like not good things. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really focus at that point in time on what I wanted to do for a career. I just wanted to get out of school so I just got had the history you had degree. you
0: never failed a class before
1: never ever so this was kind of a
0: traumatic thing
1: yes, I had gotten a c minus once mm-hmm. in a biology class, but that was i think and I think I got a C in a math class, but everything else like I'd usually done pretty solid As and B's across the board mm-hmm. so to fail a class just i I didn't really know how to take it hmm. I wasn't sure how to. What what I was supposed to do with that knowledge, and so I just decided that my main goal at that point was to get out of school, and then just figure out the rest after. So I did. I graduated and got my history degree and entered into the uh, job seeking market for a good
0: year and a half. That's that's interesting that you. Uh. So so you 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 get out you get your degree. But you don't have a teaching license, so what was your what was your plan?
1: I had given a lot of thought to going back to school later, mm-hmm. and my my plan was to go work for a while, and then go to to school and get my teaching certificate later on. I just needed to be done with school for a while, mm. and. I actually did. I started going back. I went, uh, the University of Phoenix has a a teaching certification program Mm -hmm. for secondary ed, which is what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do elementary for the simple fact that sometimes I have a hard time explaining stuff in really simple terms that kids can understand effectively. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I didn't feel like that was going to be the best use of my time. So I went for secondary ed and I started the program and they were telling us about how much work, you know, how much work there was and how much field, like, you know, teaching observation we were going to have to do and everything. And then shortly after that first class, I got a full-time job offer with the state.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that'll... So
1: <laughs> I said, school sounds cool and all, but money sounds better. Right. So I, I left the program. And fortunately... I left early enough that I got my full like tuition refunded, and oh wow, everything that so it, nice. it worked out
0: fine. so how was accessibility in college for you? because as um, you know as a blind student, you go from need your biology book in Braille and have it <laughs> to a world where need your book in any type of alternative text, and you can be fighting a spectacular battle just to get it and depending on the university and depending on their their policies you can be spending hours of additional time scanning it yourself you're very
1: you're very spoiled in k through 12
0: yeah very spoiled i don't know that you know that until you're out of it until you (laughs) don't have that anymore (laughs)
1: yeah um i was fortunate as i I stated before i had a really awesome vision teacher Mm. and one of the things he he told me when i was in eighth grade i had him from seventh through twelfth grades. I didn't have him in fifth and sixth, but in eighth grade he told me, you're gonna start high school next year. I'm gonna take a more hands-off approach. And he told me, I'm gonna be there to support you and I will intervene if I have to. I mean, he said, said, I'm gonna get you your books and everything, but in terms of advocating for your needs in a classroom, I want you to do more of that. Mm -hmm. Because when you go to college, I'm not gonna be there. And you're gonna be your only advocate in a lot of situations. So he made me start doing that early so I was okay with it when I got into college. Fortunately, Westminster, their their disabilities office is really, really good. Um, I met with them sometime in my senior year of high school and kind of told them, you know, this is me. This is kind of the stuff I'll need. And they said, do you need books in Braille or can you handle, like can you do books like from RFB&D, which is now Learning Ally, mm-hmm. like audiobooks. And I said, the only books that I need in braille are math and if I take a foreign language it would be helpful to have that in braille mm-hmm. and I tried my sophomore year of high school I was given a math book on tape it was oh, a horrible yeah horrible experience <laughs> so I knew I knew that if I was advocating for anything ever it was going to be math books in braille and Westminster um they actually did a lot of the process for me i never had to order my own books mm-hmm. they got book lists ordered the books from RFB and they they told me not to worry about the braille math book so i didn't worry about it because i was i was stressing over it a little bit i you know looked at some prices and seen thousands of dollars for books and Right. I was like, I don't have the money. You know, I can't pay for a math book if they're going to make me get my own math book. There's just no way I can feasibly do that. And the Vogue rehab people from the state were only going to pay for print textbooks, which isn't going to do me any good. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could buy it, you know, and I could get it to somebody who's then still going to have to put it into Braille and somebody's got to eat that expense somewhere and it's probably going to end up being me. But Westminster took care of it all and they actually called me a couple of weeks before my first semester of college and they said your math book still isn't here what class would you like to take instead and we'll just move your math class back a semester and we should have the book by then hmm. and so i switched it out for a different class i i stayed in the class for a couple of days because they weren't sure like if the book came in in the first week or two of class I figured I could probably catch up, it was just like an intro, you know, intro college math class. Right. And the book didn't come. So we switched classes, it showed up midway through like October or November, so then we just enrolled me in the math class for the next semester. So Westminster was really, really good that way. My senior year at Westminster, I decided I wasn't going to take tests in the Disability Center Mm -hmm. um, for a couple of reasons. A sometimes my professors would forget to get the tests over to them. Mm-hmm. Like I would remind my professors all the time and I, you know, I would let the let the disability center know, you know, I have a test on this day and they'd get me all scheduled and then I'd show up and there'd be no test. And I took the test over there because I got double time on my exams. A lot of times I didn't end up needing the extra time. So my senior year I decided I was gonna take tests in class with my peers Mm -hmm. and I think the only classes I had the only class I recall having tests in was my biology class and my biology professor he um, because I was I was doing all my tests I had a you know I had a Braille note back then and they the Braille Notes, I don't know if they do now or not have any support for USB devices, mm-hmm. but back then they didn't. They only took compact flashcards. They you do know So, um, he uh, he brought his computer. I brought my compact flashcard reader. He threw the test on a compact flashcard. I took it and threw the test back, like threw the answers on the card and gave him my exam. So, you know, oh, wow. he wasn't it's waiting great. for the disability center to get it to him. I wasn't waiting for him to get it to them. And... We took the test on a day, like he gave me the option to go over there and he said, we're taking the test on Thursdays whenever we have exams and Thursdays are three hour days. And I figured the disability center would give me six hours, but if I didn't know answers after three hours of a test, I'm not going to sit there for another three and try to, you know, I either know it or I don't at that point.
0: So how did, how did biology work for you? Um...
1: My biology professor, we need to talk about him for a minute. His (sighs) name, his name is Dave. Okay. He still teaches at Westminster. Um, I it for a geology professor as well. And I was really surprised. I, I took geology from him first and geology was, you know, it's rocks and stuff. So it was kind of a more hands-on thing anyway. Mm-hmm. But he emailed me one day out of, out of nowhere. He just sent me an email and the email was titled Thursday's class. And I'm thinking, what is this? And I opened it and he said, we're meeting at the creek on Thursday. Do you know where it is or do you want me to meet you at class and show you where we're going? Mm. Like, I didn't have to ask for this. He just sort of took it upon himself, decided this would be a thing to do and did it.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that sort of thing continued through biology. We had a section on microscopes and he said, you're not going to benefit from this probably at all. Have a Geiger counter. And he brought in a whole bunch of different materials, some of which would set off the Geiger counter and some of which wouldn't.
0: What's a Geiger counter? It's
1: a device used to measure radiation levels. Oh, okay. And he let me play with the Geiger counter. And then for a homework assignment, he gave me the Geiger counter and said, take it home. Here's a list of things you'll find around your house. See which ones of them set off the Geiger counter and write a paper about it. So he was really good at coming up with alternative assignments that would still teach me stuff, Uh but, you know, were things that I could do. And we had a, um, one of the things in our test was a, um, dichotomous key. Are you familiar with the dichotomous key? No. Of course not. Um, <laughs> I have to try and remember how to explain this now. Basically what it is, it's, it's a two thing. It, you see it a lot in field guides. You use them to identify species of animals. Okay. And it has two answers. Yes or no. It'll ask a question. Like, does it have a certain color feather? Mm-hmm. If it's yes, you go to this other page. If it's no, you go to this other page. Okay. And then it continues asking questions that have you know, yes or no answers until you can drill down and identify the animal. Got it. So he brought in an armadillo skeleton that was completely intact and mm-hmm. very tactile. And all the questions on the dichotomous key in the exam, you were able to answer visually and tactilely. so that that I could still do that portion of the exam and he didn't have to come up with an alternative thing. Yeah, so he was very good at coming up with these kind of things. And I had had other professors who weren't. I had a professor once who said, I want to get to know you all, make a collage. And I had no desire to make a collage. That's not going to benefit me. You know, it's just pictures and things. Mm -hmm. So I talked to my professor and I was like, this is kind of a ridiculous assignment for you. I'm not going to benefit from it in any way. So we ended up doing like a essentially an audio collage. I just went and recorded, you know, sound bites of things that were kind of made made up my, you know, me as a as a human being mm-hmm. and I put it together and just brought it to class. Mm-hmm. So some sometimes I had to work with professors on alternative assignments and some of them just sort of were like you're not going to benefit from this, so have this other assignment instead.
0: That's cool that you had teachers that were willing to um accommodate you and not pitch fits. But Westminster is a is an undergrad. Yes. And they and, and there's not they do have a graduate program. They have some graduate programs. But they don't have a publisher parish philosophy, do they? I mean they're not research focused, are they? No. I don't believe so. That's my understanding. Um so they tend to be you know, the idea behind that is that they're more student focused and mm-hmm. well, it sounds like with you they really were that's awesome very much so yeah
1: i enjoyed my time there a lot i would go back that's cool if i if i decided to do school again and i had the money i would go back that's
2: really
0: cool
1: the money is mostly the thing that <laughs> right 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 <laughs> i mean i got i got to go to europe while i was at westminster oh, because of the choir all
0: right so um but you got to go to europe i did
1: um my junior year i went to choir rehearsal. I'd been in in choir since my freshman year of high school, basically. Um, So my junior year of college, I went to choir rehearsal. I was the only guy there. Oh, Which is whatever. I figured, you know, it's the first day. Maybe people don't know that there's a choir. And this was at Westminster. This was at Westminster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. By the third day of no other guys being there, there was talk of making it an all-girls choir. And I was like, well, that's fine, but then I'm not going to have choir. Right. And the choir director... There were two choirs. There was the Westminster Singers, which is just a come-as-you-are come choir. Mm-hmm. And then there was the Chamber Singers, which is an audition choir. I was not in the Chamber Singers at this point in time. Mm-hmm. I had never done, an ad- done a choir audition in my life, and it kind of scared me as a concept. So after the third rehearsal, the director of the Chamber Singers came up to me and he said, come see me Tuesday. If you want to audition, you can audition. And I was like, that's really, really scary. But I did, and I got in, and then he said, by the way, we're going to Europe in May. Oh. So we went to France and to Spain for three and a half weeks. Mm-hmm. Now I'm all set. I'm actually, one of the things I'm working on as kind of a long-term plan is transferring to an Apple store in London
2: mm-hmm.
1: and living there for a minimum six months mm. and just kind of you know absorbing the culture. And my grandma hates this plan. She has no desire to hear about it. That being said, she keeps looking at the weather in London to see what it looks like, but she doesn't want me to go. And my mom figures, you know, whatever. You've been out of the country. If you want to go, you should go. And I really want to do it.
0: Well, uh, you're 31. Yeah, my grandma
1: doesn't... Growing up is hard for my grandma, I think. She had a hard enough time when I... Do
0: you think that's related to your blindness? I mean, if your brother was wanting to go do you think yes and no same grief
1: to some extent yes Mm. yeah because we're two houses down the road from my grandmother Mm -hmm. we've always been two houses down the road from her she doesn't have any other family this close my uncle one of my uncles lives in saint george Mm -hmm. which is you know four and a half hours away the other one lives in phoenix so my brother and I are the only grandkids that she has that live close enough to her that she sees us on a regular basis. Mm. So I think if he wanted to move away, she would. It would. She wouldn't like it, but she might be a little bit less vocal about it. Mm. She didn't like it when I moved to Ogden when I got my job at the School for the Blind.
0: So you graduate with a degree in history, mm-hmm. and and you did a year and a half
1: searching for jobs. searching for a job. Yes. What was
0: that like? Um. And what were you it searching for? Anything? Would, what were you anything
1: need? would anything would do really. When,
0: when was this?
1: Uh, I graduated in oh nine. In May of oh nine.
0: And Apple's stuff became accessible when?
1: I got my first iPhone in December of oh nine. Okay. But I don't remember exactly
0: I, I think it was sometime in oh yeah. nine that they that they started. Mm-hmm. Um So
1: my actual first application to Apple, I I applied twice before I started working there. Oh. My first application to work there, I want to say was in April of Mm 10-ish. Like I'd had an iPhone for a while and I just fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. And I decided I want to work for this company. I want to teach people how to use Apple products. Um. I had had a little bit of exposure to their computers. Um, one of the things I did while I was job searching was go back to Juan Diego and volunteer my time um, in their student services office.
0: Mm-hmm. They... For fun or in the hopes that that would... Both. Yeah. Because a lot of people with disabilities... Actually, that's how my husband ended up in his career is he started volunteering. Oh, wow. Yeah. And wow. It, it's ended up into what will most, you know, what will most likely end up into his 30-year career.
1: Oh wow. Yeah, I I initially just kind of went there just, you know, I needed something to do cuz filling out job applications and waiting to hear back from people was necessary, but it wasn't fun. Right. And I needed to get out of the house. I just I, you know, I stayed at home and filled out job applications and that's what I did. And I didn't I didn't want to, to do that.
0: So, what were you applying for?
1: Anything, everything, um
0: other than truck driver?
1: Uh yes. <laughs> and other also then air traffic controller oh which i've um when i was little one of my favorite things i had a police scanner Mm -hmm. one of my hobbies was to listen to the frequencies for the airport Mm. and pick a plane and follow it so if it got told to switch to a different radio frequency i would follow it and Mm. i would follow it until it either flew out of range or landed
0: Oh, that's awesome. And then
1: I would pick another plan that was taking off and follow it all the way out. Mm-hmm. And this is what I did when I was a tiny little kid, you know, when I didn't have school and work and stuff to worry about. <coughs> and now there are websites that let you do the same kind of thing and listen to air traffic control online.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If I could see, I think that might have been a career that I would have considered. Mm-hmm. Because it's very, it's very busy, mm-hmm. which I need. I've discovered in my life that I need a busy kind of job. I can't just do monotonous work all the time. And it's very busy and it's very, you're communicating with different people all the time.
0: Have, have you ever been sad about being blind?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: So it was just, you know, if I could have seen, I would have done this, but yeah, it's not that big of yeah, a deal. Not a huge mm-hmm. deal. You're applying for everything under the sun mm-hmm. and you, um, I was doing, I, I mean, I wasn't,
1: simply just applying for stuff um when i when i graduated from college my mom and i decided we were going to take a trip out of the country again Mm -hmm. because my mom and i really love to travel Mm -hmm. my dad will only travel if it's for hunting and fishing so my mom and i kind of became travel buddies and we decided we were going to go to cancun we also a few months later went on a cruise Mm -hmm. Um, the utah council of the blind was doing a cruise so i figured hey it's a cruise Right. I'd never been on one before. So Clint stayed home and I went on the cruise and um I got to pet a dolphin. Oh fun. Which was awesome. And it was at like a like a uh you know, uh what do you what do you call them? Like a like a sea animal like reserve kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And this lady she she tapped me on the shoulder and i found out later that she ran one of the exhibits at the at the reserve and she tapped me on the shoulder and she was very hush hush about it and she was like come with me and i was like um okay so i did like my mom my mom told me that she worked there so i was like fine whatever i'll follow you and she said i'm not technically supposed to do this but you need to feel this and they Uh had a sea lion there that people weren't supposed to touch but i got to touch the sea lion
0: yeah, I I treasure those. It was uh, awesome. My dad and I were at a fort in Florida and we were touching Illegally, I was touching the cannonballs through a rope. And this lady comes up. She's like, excuse me. And I'm like, oh, crap. And my dad's like, yeah. And his tone of voice is like, you totally better not get after my kid. And she's like, do you want to see some other things we have in our fort? And like, okay. Right? Yeah. So she shows us this tactile model of the fort. Oh, and the wow. And beds I slept in. And then she takes me into this closet where nobody gets to go and shows me all these guns and has the fort's gun expert come and talk to me. Awesome. how guns were developed and then they had these replica uniforms and so I got to put on this replica uniform oh, and there's wow. a picture on my dad's wall of me and my guide dog and this nice lady <laughs> who I wish I knew her name and holding a gun. Oh wow. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> yes you you need I don't know how but we need for that to be more the norm.
0: I know and it's and it's the exception to the rule if mm-hmm. you you treasure them. You oh, absolutely! You Treasure those memories. You never, yeah. you never forget them. Mm-mm. Never forget them. So, um, you done traveling. What kind of jobs were you applying for?
1: Um, a lot of customer service type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Because I knew even then that I was very people. Like I needed to be around people. Yeah. I couldn't do you know a job that's just me doing something. Mm-hmm. So I was doing a lot of customer service stuff, and then I I don't remember if I read it or if I watched a documentary, but. I saw something about people who work in emergency call centers handling 911 calls. Mm -hmm. And I decided that that sounded like a ridiculously stressful job, Mm -hmm. but also something that would be like, I would feel like I was serving a really, like a purpose Mm -hmm. doing that. And I reached out to the people at the local emergency communication center, Mm -hmm. and I expressed my interest, and one of them said, I don't know who you need to talk to, but I'll find out, and I'll, you know, tell you who to send your resume to. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that was it. They never contacted me again. Mm -hmm. So that dream ended before it really got to go anywhere. Now,
0: had you thought about trying to find blind people that were already in jobs you wanted?
1: No. And I think part of the reason I hadn't is because I've always kind of liked to just carve my own path. Mm Mm-hmm. I've never been a huge believer in like doing something just like that other people are doing. I would have been totally fine if I was the first blind person to do something. So I didn't, A, I didn't necessarily look at jobs that other blind people were doing and B, I didn't look for other blind people who were in jobs. Hmm. I just sort of was like, this job looks cool. I'm going to apply for it. Hmm. And I, you know, I did a fair number of interviews which.
0: What was the interview process like for you?
1: It always started out really well. People were very nice to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And. It would go fine up until the issue of how I was going to do the job came up. And I. I got to figure out pretty quickly that if you ask me that question, the chances of me getting the job are not very high. Mm. And. The only time I wasn't really asked the question, I I was asked it when I applied for most of the places. I wasn't asked, I applied to work at Discover Card as a customer service representative. Mm. And they never asked me anything about how I was going to do the job. I came to find out later after I didn't get the job Mm -hmm. that they had other blind people who worked there.
2: Mm.
1: However, their software was in the process of changing and it was becoming inaccessible with screen readers. Oh, so they they knew that I, you know, in ideal circumstances would have been able to do the job perfectly fine. And then they transitioned to new software, as you do, because that's the thing to do. And it broke accessibility. So, but they were...
0: Yeah, I, I remember visiting with a friend of mine who is a teacher in Arizona. Um, and... That's what he said the interview would be for him for job after job would be just questions about how would you deal with, you know, teach students that are making out. And then and then he'd answer it. How would you deal with this? How would you deal with that? And so it was like, did you feel like they had the people that were asking you how would you do the job? Do you feel like that almost predetermined that you couldn't?
1: Sometimes, yes. Mm hmm. There were a couple of instances, and I wish I could remember. Like, a lot of this time kind of blends together in my brain because it it was a lot of the same stuff over and over again.
2: Right.
1: Um, But there were a couple of of places where I didn't get that sense. I got the sense that they were just genuinely curious. Mm -hmm. But that was pretty rare. A lot of it, it was, I'm pretty sure they had already made up in their mind that I wasn't going to be able to do it. They just wanted to see how I would answer their questions.
0: Mm. Does that get discouraging?
1: Yeah, kind of, but I didn't, I mean, I needed to work, you know, I needed to put money in my pocket. I had student loans to pay off. I wanted to get a place of my own. I had a lot of things I wanted to do in my life, which required money. So I didn't, I mean, um,
0: so your need for a a job came to be more important to you than the discouragement? Yes.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost applied when I was volunteering at Juan Diego. The lady who worked in the student services office uh, quit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No, she didn't quit. She transferred to another another section of the school. Mm-hmm. And I actually filled in for her a couple of times. Um, mm-hmm. And they paid me.
2: Mm-hmm. But she
1: went out of town for like three days once. And they said, who do you want to fill in for you? And she said, John's going to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: She didn't say, that's who I want to do it. She just flat out told them, John's going to do it. <laughs> right. And And I did. And it went really well. Mm-hmm. and I almost applied to take that job when she left, but I had interviewed at the School for the Blind shortly before, and they offered me a job before mm-hmm. I had a chance to apply for hers. But I think if I had applied for both, I probably still would have taken the one at the School for the Blind just because I think it would have, like, it it paid better long term, and initially, I didn't think there were as many politics at the School for the Blind as there are at Juan Diego.
0: I was wrong. Thank you for joining us on Ability Stories. Please review this podcast in iTunes. To comment on this episode, please go to abilitystories.podbean.com. If you have any show ideas, or would like to be a guest on Ability Stories, send an email to abilitystories at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.